This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. For now, welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Tyler. How's it going, Vanessa? Good, good. And me, Vanessa. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, things are good. It's Mm. nice and cosy in studio. Yeah, I've had a very relaxing uh, afternoon after work, which is good to have. Yeah, it's been relaxing except for all the spiders and scorpions sort of things around the doorways here. Leftover from Radiothon. Taking a lot of um, double takes. Mm. So this evening we have a lot to look forward to. We're going to be speaking with Vanessa Paik, who is um, an expert in community management. Um, She is my go-to person for advice on this field and it's an incredibly topical area at the moment. She'll be speaking um, in part about the Swarm Conference, which is a community management conference happening up in Sydney very soon. But we'll get to that a little bit later Mm -hmm. in the show. Tyler, we've got some news we couldn't do our news section this evening without covering the call to ban killer robots. Did you catch any of this? Uh, yeah, I did, actually. It's um, It's been floating around my Facebook feed all week. It certainly hit the mainstream media. Uh, mm. The project covered it the other night, I believe. And uh, there isn't a tech bit of press that hasn't covered this. It was quite nice to see an Australian expert getting a bit of coverage in this story as well. What's happened is that there's an open letter signed by 116 founders of robotics and artificial intelligence companies from 26 countries, including... Elon Musk, we always have to mention him. Of course. And Mustafa Suleiman. And um, they've urged the United Nations to ban lethal autonomous weapons, often called killer robots. Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the people who signed the letter and helped coordinate the release of this one is a leading Australian expert. His name's Toby Walsh. He's the Scientia Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And um, they've released this at the opening of the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence, which is actually on in Melbourne at the moment. It's a gathering of top experts in AI and robotics. Toby Walsh will also be speaking with me, funnily enough, disclosure, Uh at uh, the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Um, He'll be speaking about AI and uh, the potential for worklessness in the future. So do look out for that event. But um, it's it's really, it's an interesting time for people to be speaking out about military applications of, you know, the the, uh, the area where robotics and artificial intelligence crosses over. Mm. I guess the big concerns in this space are how quickly machines can make decisions if they're, you know, programmed to do certain things and that they they don't um, have the gaps in reflexes that humans might if they're making a decision to, you know, end the life of an enemy combatant. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the uh, the old age-old question about uh, the trolley problem. It's like, uh, do we sacrifice a single life to save more lives that... Um, and how can a robot make that distinction uh, between what is murder and what is, uh, yeah, it's very Definitely. utilitarian. Definitely. How, how do you program this in? You know, how do mm. you program in the right decision making? Uh, some might say that it's easier to program in the right decision making than it is for for a human to do this. But um, mm. I would say that for years, you know, military have uh, had to fight against people's basic human instincts to you know look after other humans uh, to get them in a mindset where they can kill people. This is getting a bit beyond tech, isn't oh, it? It is. A bit We've philosophical. Been, yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of problems with this. So Elon has been, because we're mates now, Elon and I, we yeah. cover him old, every old week. Elon. Yeah. Musky. <laughs> Musky has, has been um, very on the front foot about uh, needing to be proactive in the regulation of any application of artificial intelligence. So this fits right in. It's... Uh, 
it's hard to argue with <laughs> when you've got all these experts sort of saying something. It's a bit like the climate yeah. change argument. We should probably be listening and getting on the front foot because we know that uh, there are it's incentives yeah, for people to move here. Yeah. Um, in uh, slightly more light news, <laughs> yes. um, the uh, Android 8.0 Oreo has been unveiled and will be coming to your device soon. Uh, it was timed to come out during the solar eclipse, which I think is fun uh, over in America over there. Um, a bunch of new uh, things coming to your devices shortly, um, including picture-in-picture -picture mode. Uh, we also have native autofill functionality for all your passwords and emails and stuff like that. Uh, notification snoozing, which is something I'm very excited about. Like, stop all my s annoying apps from annoying me uh, particularly, all day, every day. Particularly on the Android um, mm. phones, that's a bit of a it's a bit of a common yeah, feature. It's like oh, I've got my news app, and it'll tell me three times a day what what the news is, and uh, over and over. And uh, so that's, yeah. that's 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 something that I, I welcome with open arms. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of these new features that are coming out still require the uh, developers to support them. So that's the caveat that comes with any sort of new software, I suppose. It's uh, everyone needs to get like get on the front foot and uh, start supporting that sort of stuff as soon as possible. Yeah, implementing new features yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a gap there. Mm. Um, what's up next? Oh, I guess we have the Samsung Galaxy. I'm having trouble saying that. Samsung Galaxy Note 8, which has launched um, today. And before it's launched, they managed to leak some photos on The Verge. So we don't know where those came from. There wasn't a media embargo on reporting on this before then. But The, the Verge were very careful to say, we haven't broken the embargo, <laughs> but we have been... Um, we have received some images that may or may not be the upcoming <laughs> Samsung Galaxy Note. So it was quite it's quite interesting to see that come out. Um, you've got it's quite thin in terms of the the vertical you know form factor of the device, and it's got um, some touch sort of panels next to some cameras and things on the back of it, uh, so that you can use your hand behind the, the screen uh, to sort of okay. to unlock it. Yeah. So they've used a very different. Um, there was a handheld console that had that at some point. Was it which one was that? The PSP uh, or the Vita? Ah, it had ah, the touchscreen on know. the back. Yeah, I can't quite remember which I'm one. I'm too it was. behind the news with the game yeah. devices. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, so you know, you've got um, a 6.3 inch um, super AMO LED <coughs> display. Um, dual rear-facing cameras with 12 megapixel sensors, 6 gig of RAM, 64 gig of storage, plus expandable storage, which is, you know, a massive feature and really where the Androids, you know, managed to leapfrog the, mm -hmm. the uh, iPhones. Yeah, mm. anyway, people are pretty excited about it. It's getting good reviews, so it's probably a bit early for us to say here. I don't want to jump on the hype yeah, wagon. And it's also very hard to uh, describe pictures over the radio, so mm. uh, jump on Google or your, <laughs> your search engine of preference and uh, have a look it up. Absolutely. And, uh, Great yeah. advice. Um, Apple is up next, going through all the major companies today. It's, uh, we've got Tesla go to Google, Apple and Samsung, um, is getting into the media market along with Netflix and Amazon and uh, Hulu and all those shows and investing a billion dollars in acquiring and producing original TV shows over the next year. Uh, this is according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, it could result in as many as 10 new shows um, and it's looking to match the high quality output networks like HBO, which is obviously the big one in America. Mm. Um, it, the interesting thing is, though, uh, we're sort of moving towards saturation of the market with all of these uh, new original shows. Um, as So uh, TV shows, I suppose, are catching up to the rest of the world in, mm. in having the, the media saturated. We've got the music industry. We've got uh, 
video content production on, online. Definitely. And, um, so Apple already produced some original content, including the reality show Planet of the Apps, which is quite popular. And, you mm-hmm. know, you've got the, the stars of that show as real Twitter celebrities these days as well. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can parlay this. Um, all they need, if we follow the Netflix model, is one really successful product, yep. one sort of Get people program. subscribed mm. and then uh, pump the rest of them out yeah. as they do. Um, I guess competition's a good thing, but it's hard to feel that way about such major players. It, it, it is, you know, yeah. It's not. A, it's not exactly like the indie indie producers are getting a whole lot of spotlight, unless yeah. unless they get hired by <laughs> <laughs> by Apple, of course. Yeah, definitely. Welcome back to Bite Into It with Tyler and Vanessa. We've just been joined in studio by our special guest for this evening. Vanessa Paik is a global authority on community management. She's worked with iconic businesses like Envato, REA, Lonely Planet and Australia Post. In 2015, she co-sponsored the inaugural Australian Community Manager Career Survey and in 2016 launched the first Code of Ethics for Australian Community Managers with Alison Milchalk, who's the CEO of Quip. Vanessa and Alison co-founded the Swarm Conference, Australia's only conference for online community managers, and she's here to tell us more about it tonight. Welcome back to Byte, Vanessa. Hey, fellow Vanessa, I've missed you. It's so good to have you back in here. Um, just for listeners out there, Vanessa, our guest, is V-E-N-E-S-S-A, respectfully <laughs> yours, and I am the V-A-N-E-S-S-A. I'm sure you can hear the difference. Definitely. Otherwise known as V1 and V2. Absolutely. You can decide which is which. You're V1. You're, you're V1. You're the guest. It's always the talent who's V1. I think we can go with that safely. Look, great to have you back on Byte. Um, We would love to hear a little bit about what's coming up with Swarm Conference this year. It's it's such a unique conference within the Australian market and it's such um, a niche, but it's really an area that has so many issues that tons of organisations and members of the public, you know, come to grips with day to day. So I think people will be pretty interested in it. What's coming up for your conference this year? Well, you're right. It is a unique little uh, little event. Um, this is the sixth year that we've run Swarm. So it started in 2011. And look, since that time, even six short years, obviously this industry changes very fast. The, the world of community management has evolved and iterated countless times in that time. So, you know, I think when we first started, we were talking about sort of, I guess, traditional, you might say, online communities, lots of forums, things like that. Um, Then it sort of evolved into, you know, incorporating more social media as those platforms tended to dominate the space where people might choose to build a community or uh, manage a community, uh, whether that be brands or organisations or uh, people building it around an idea or that sort of stuff. Uh, And then, of course, in 2017... Businesses are looking at uh, community in much more sophisticated ways. They're thinking of it holistically as, you know, a framework for leading a company. How do you lead a a company like a community manager? How do you apply community to innovation? How do you use community as a scaling mechanism for innovation and ideas? How do you use it to build healthy cultures inside an organisation or inside a business, whether that's for customers or for your staff or for anybody else? So community is um, going mainstream, which is really exciting, but it does mean that it's um, really diffuse and more diverse than ever. I love that you touch on a, a few really hot issues there. Like there is the the community management aspect um, goes across all of these as an umbrella, but the social media management stuff was really so hot for a while, almost to the exclusion of the idea of any other sorts of communities. Mm. Um, and we also saw... Uh, oh, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought very quickly. Um 
There was something else you mentioned in there that I wanted to unpack a little bit. Um, Oh, I've totally forgotten. I'm sorry. Um, but I wonder, what, what trends are you, are you seeing in the area at this time and, um, and how's that been reflected in, in how you've pulled together the, the conference program this year? Mm, well, the conference is definitely always created to, to try to mirror what's going on in the market and to try to, to mirror what community managers are, th are thinking about and talking about uh, most of the time and the things they have burning questions for. We like to talk about Swarm as our annual group hug um, when people can come together and sort of have a bit of group therapy as well, but it's also a chance to pull together topical stuff that people are interested in community can also kind of get across as well. So I guess the main trends we're looking at this year that are trends, as you say, across multitudes of industries, uh, the rise of AI, automation and machine learning, that's mm. a really big one as we look to see the opportunities for AI and machine learning to outsource some of the more banal, kind of annoying parts of community management, like you know, cleaning up spam or swatting <laughs> trolls at a low level. That's the sort of stuff that, you know, you want to outsource to machine if you can. So you can, you know, the squeaky wheel syndrome and stuff, and you can get back to the important stuff of relationship building and, you know, kind of uh, heroing the kind of behaviour you want to see or building building great ideas, telling stories, whatever that might be mm. for your community. That's more difficult for a machine to do at this stage. Um, but we're looking forward to the machines helping us mop up the, the rubbishy side of things. But then we're also looking at um, fake news and I guess the role of truth in an authenticity in communities, which is really interesting. Obviously, fake news as a as an expression has come on the radar in the last couple of years, thanks to a certain orange individual. Um, <laughs> orange 45. <laughs> orange 45, that's right. Uh, <laughs> annoying Tangelo. Um, but it is an interesting idea, I think, this idea of, of um, you know, as publishers and media have converged, we've got kind of, while in one respect we've got more voices than ever who have a potential microphone and platform, we've also got fewer players in the space who are actually the platform the, the formalised platforms and publishers to host those voices. So if that's the case, the algorithms that they create, the, the way they determine what floats to the surface, what gets pushed back down, um, what, you know, draws your attention and what doesn't, what they broker as truth or not, becomes quite significant if you're, you know, if you're building a community on any of those platforms. It also has an impact on the psyche and just the state of mind of people in general out there in the world. And they'll bring that into any community that you might be asking them to step into or creating around them. Mm. So it's a really interesting idea. So we've got um, Dave Early, who's audience editor at The Guardian, um, who's doing some great work in this space. And he's actually going to talk expressly about this. He's going to talk about building community in a world of fake news, what we all need to be aware of, the opportunities that it invites for us but also the challenges that we need to face. Um, we've got a really cool guy coming over from Silicon Valley called Bill Johnston who runs a company called Structure 3C. He's been in the industry, gosh, like 25, 30 years. He actually inspired Alison and myself for a long time. And he's talking about um, community as a means to scale innovation, which is really useful for mm. startups in particular, any entrepreneurs who can look at look at things through a network lens um, and also any really any company or organisation that kind of wants to help self-disrupt a little more effectively. Um, and excitingly for me, because I've been working to get um, more online gamers into the conference for a while, we've got the, the very talented Kelsey Gamble and Emma Swee, um, who are two really lovely, uh, talented and smart online community gaming ladies, <coughs> excuse me, who are coming to talk about, um, I guess, the, the playbook that they've learned from, from years working with online gaming communities and how mm. that can be extensible for any type of community because those communities are some of the, the oldest that have been around mm. and there's some really interesting lessons they can teach us. Yeah, yeah very much. Um, when we were speaking before, uh, you mentioned the idea of digital body language um, and I feel like that would be very appropriate for uh, your online gaming stuff like that. Could you tell us a bit about 
that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's an expression we community managers throw around a bit, and I think uh, lots of online communicators probably do. Actually, you know, we, it's it's the same as offline body language, analog body language. Mm. People have a certain way that they they might compose a sentence, they might visually express themselves. You know, if it's a, if it's a more visual medium, it might be syntax, it might be choice of emojis, but there are certain tells and signals and cues in the way you express yourself online that tell the yeah, that present yourself in a certain way. It also creates some a tone. It creates a bit of a culture in that community. So if you're a community manager, you need to learn to recognise those, mm. to to imitate them, not in an inauthentic way, but to be able, to, I guess, respond in kind to sort of you know show that you're you know you can meet like for like. And uh, also to be able to to, um, to adapt a lot as well. So you've got to be able to kind of transport from one type of digital body language to another quite quickly. Sometimes if you're dealing with a community of, say, you know, um, businessmen and start shirts and or entrepreneurs <laughs> or online gamers, they're all going to talk and behave very differently online. You need to be able to connect in a way that makes the most sense to them. So... Jumping back to one of your guest speakers, um, Dave Early from The Guardian, that's um, quite a coup to, to get him to speak. Um, he's right at the front line. Uh, many of us read The Guardian and have probably thought to ourselves, do I read the comments beneath any piece? <laughs> um, one structural question, um, is the, the content moderation there happening at a global level or do you know whether it sort of happens in the Australian market separately to mm. like UK published content? So my understanding, and I, I, if Dave's on Twitter and listening, he can clarify if I get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow him at Early Edition. Um, but I understand that it, there, there are, and this is pretty common actually for a global organisation. There are global policies and frameworks in terms of approach and you know what's um, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and there are uh, nuances allowed for local markets. Um, that's particularly important for any kind of publication or organisation that is in um, certain Asian countries, certain Middle Eastern countries, anywhere where. Um, cultural norms actually might be quite a bit different mm. in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, so everywhere is allowed to have some level of um, flexibility in how they sort of implement or prosecute that moderation. But broadly speaking, there is an agreed approach and agreed framework in terms of, you know, the kind of commenting culture that that publication would like to cultivate. Right. Uh, and I guess I'd be curious about when you're interested in news and veracity and and truth uh what sort of what is a good metric for uh i guess for looking at engagement with your content you know when you get a whole lot of crazy trolls attracted to some of your content is that considered a win for click-throughs or is this <laughs> you know not the desired not the desired effect you know like how do you yeah. how do you start going what's good here and and what can we improve and what what's better mm. versus what's just what's just volume of engagement mm. that's a really pertinent question i think it actually cuts right to the heart of one of the distinctions between, I guess, content and social media marketing versus community management. Um, neither is better or worse. They overlap, but they are a little different in terms of what their objectives are and how you measure them. So as you said, you know, volume sort of, you know, is great in a lot of circumstances and growth and volume is what people are shooting for. But really when it comes to community specifically, you're actually shooting more for quality and relevance rather than reach. Mm. So if something has reach, that can be a really good thing. But some of the most successful communities have lots of barriers to entry and, ex and are quite small and are clustered behind a wall somewhere. So volume is not a play for them. It's actually about relevance and depth of 
of engagement versus you know just sizability. I think that we do see a lot still, unfortunately, of um, uh, of people feeling the pressure to, uh, and often this is you know a, a, a someone who's maybe new to social media who's really feeling the pressure from an employer to you know kind of do pull out all the stops to get the engagement, get the likes up, all that sort of stuff. And you know we've seen some incidents incidences in the past of organisations um, doing some pretty pretty crappy stuff to uh, to game engagement, pretty unseemly sort of stuff. Mm. You know gender and racial baiting, all this sort of stuff that we you well, know, just, isn't really just acceptable. even the tedious jumping on every meme that doesn't really align with their purpose or, or anything. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, or hashtag cause of the day mm. is my yeah my my brand art to, to work with that. Mm. And yeah, that sort of stuff can get exhausting. I think there are some organisations and brands and businesses that really get it. They, they know the language of their audience. They know that digital body language. They make it work. But there are an awful lot that try and fail. <laughs> um, I think it comes down to, you know, that, that it's really about ethics. You know, ethics is something else we're actually going to talk about at Swarm. You know, what's the ethics that a ethical framework a community manager needs to have and bring to their work? How does has an organisation approach their ethics and approach to community? Is, you know, is community management the new corporate social responsibility? Mm. That's an interesting thought starter. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. But I think you have to take a stand and a position and have clarity about that because nature abhors a vacuum and trolls certainly love one. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to, got to have a position and know what you're trying to build or it'll get taken over before you start. We're in the middle of a conversation with Vanessa Paik, who is the co-founder of the Swarm Conference and a global authority on community management. Vanessa, welcome back. Thanks, Vanessa. Not that we've been anywhere, but um, it's been very <laughs> nice rocking out to some some uh, tunes in here with you. Look, we've spoken a little bit about um, some of the program at Swarm Conference, but um, we've, we'd like to move on to day two, which is going to be a bit more of a focus on AI. Yeah, so... Um Swarm is held at the University of Sydney when it's in Sydney and the University of Melbourne when it's in Melbourne. It sort of alternates between the two cities. And one of the reasons we've partnered with the two unis is because it lets bring some really smart scholars and researchers into the conversation. Um, And I noticed kind of early on when I was in this industry that, you know, we had a lot of really smart researchers who were sort of looking for actual practitioners they could study and work with and talk to to understand this space a little better and community community managers who didn't necessarily know there was a body of work out there and really great thinking and theory and um, studies that can actually they can apply in their work and can enrich what they do so I was uh, working to you know kind of bring those two groups together if we could so there's a transdisciplinary focus which we really dig and we think makes Swarm a bit special so day two has that symposium focus. It's where the academics will gather and the focus is squarely on AI, machine learning and automation in the world of community management. So we'll be talking about things like the rise of chatbots and, you know, um, uh, the humans that are involved in programming them. You know, uh, some some organisations are tapping community specialists to give them a particular type of voice um, that's a bit beyond just kind of just a sales bot, you know, that's mm. maybe got a few more human qualities, um, which is really interesting. And then, you know, so one of the many things community managers do is welcome an on board people into an online community you know maybe maybe bots can do that we're seeing a little bit more of that already where bots might be the first thing instead of getting a trigger email or something like that you might have a bot show up and wave hi and welcome mm. you in and say look here are some discussions you might find interesting we're really great to have you they might be able to d- determine something about you and where you've come from and put point you in the direction of some relevant information just those little sort of mm. things some of the um uh, may to d type roles of community management um which are only a small part of the job but you know maybe can actually be outsourced meaningfully to machines mm. Mm. do you think people 
people who've nailed the user experience of um, of bots? Because I feel like sometimes you're still in that space where you're like, is this a bot? Am I speaking to a bot? <laughs> or is there a person behind the service? You know, when you're on, um, say, a furniture website from Sweden mm. or something like that. <laughs> Just a random furniture yeah. website. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, I don't think we've got there quite yet. No, I think, um, look, it is moving fast. So I think that it, it's developing quite impressively and there's a lot of very clever people working to humanise the technology in smart, contextual ways, not just sort of silly, fluffy ways, which is great. Um, and they really are working a lot with anthropologists and ethnographers and people that have spent a lifetime studying human behaviour so that the, you know, there's a real level of authenticity to this. But I do, I do agree. I think we're in the uncanny valley stage of all of this stuff still where it you know especially if you're prop if you're pretty sure it's a bot it's kind of a little weird look i had a i had a situation i think last year where i was trying to hook up a meeting with somebody overseas and I spent, you know, four or five emails back and forth with, with their some, one of their team until I realised it was their virtual AI <laughs> that I was setting up a meeting with and I was like, great, have a nice day. What's the weather like over there? You know, oh. having a whole entire conversation and they were talking back quite credibly. That's the thing. And I, mm. it was only when that person said, oh, that's my virtual assistant. What do you think? I went, oh, okay, I was totally fooled. Pretty, so this pretty is, good. Yeah. yeah. Well, this yeah. is exactly the problem that there would be a separate protocol for us to deal with a bot and in order not to waste our time. Mm. And it's it's odd to be put in that position where you don't know if something's a bot or not. So similarly, when people are, are moderating content or fielding content coming in from a lot of places, you know, bots, particularly from Russia, have been <laughs> a massive a massive piece of news in themselves this year, um, whether they're influencing our elections or not. Uh, I, so that takes us back to the automation piece. Um, presumably, people would be developing things to help uh, community managers cope and, and identify bot-type behaviour. What's going on in that space? Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff. There is um, quite a bit of software now available, sort of next-gen software. There was some early stuff in this space in the last decade that was okay at sort of help, you know, could let you automate simple processes that a moderator might do, but was still very rudimentary and really didn't have any nuance to it. It's sort of, you know, if it wasn't a square peg, it, <laughs> it was, you know, it, it didn't, you know, it was treated like a round hole, basically. Um, now it's getting a little bit more sophisticated um, and it is... They are pretty good, some of this tech, at um, at detecting those sort of things. There is a whole bunch of tr factors you can triangulate. It's the sort of thing we used to do manually when we, when we used to manage communities and sort of go, I know that series of email addresses and those four IPs from that server mm -hmm. and that thing and that syntax and, and then you'd know it was, you know, that group of serial pests or, you know, likely a bot farm from some country. Yeah. So you sort of developed all that knowledge on the fly when you're, um, you know, an old school community manager. Now we can just teach it to the machines and mm -hmm. they can learn a lot mm -hmm. faster. And I think the key thing with machines is that they can go fast. They can go clearly so much faster than we can, which is great because what you don't want to do and what really gets in the way of good community management sometimes is that squeaky wheel syndrome I mentioned, having to clean up the crap and having to, you know, kind of spend attention on mm. things that you'd much rather be, you know, mm. would not rather be spending attention on, sort of the things that are bad, the bad behaviour and the, the taking out the trash rather than recruiting new members or creating an event for your members or doing something that is, um, you know, that is more meaningful or more meaningful moderation even, helping correct behaviour through a conversation rather than, yes. you know, just wielding a band hammer, that <laughs> sort of stuff. So definitely. there are levels of mo moderation has never been black and white and it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. So there's going to be levels of, you know, you might have a member who's been in a community for years and years, they're a real person, you know who they are, but they're acting up and 
being really destructive or, you know, non-constructive to the community. So you need to have a conversation about that. You can't exactly outsource that to a machine. It's not going to, you know, there is, it's challenging to create a protocol for that, again, at this stage. Do you feel that on public forums, um, and I don't just mean forums, I mean any any type of mm. public, you know, dialogue place, uh, that there's been a move towards a lack of transparency around those sort of behaviours. So when when people were actively moderating communities in the old days, say on an IRC channel, it would be very visible to everyone that so-and-so has been banned for this long, this mm. duration, and for this reason and this reason and this reason. And often that was automated, uh, which was amazing. Mm. Uh, but nowadays, let's say if I do go onto a newspaper website, usually the first I'll hear about... Uh, some correctional sort of interventions is when the people who've been <laughs> intervened with Come start back. complaining about it <laughs> yeah. and saying, oh, these people, they censor me and do X and Y. Yeah. And I feel like I don't get the real picture because I'm not hearing that from the voice of the moderator. Mm. I'm only hearing it from the... from The, um, the affected party. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, I miss IRC. Yeah. <laughs> that's a um, whole other... <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's still there. It's just a very different mm. place now. <laughs> um, I look... I think you're right. And, of course, it is also a favourite tactic of certain people to pretend that they've been censored yeah. or banned when they never mm. have. I've yes. certainly seen that in my day of people ah, that, you know, sitting there as the community manager having never disciplined this user who ah. then posts and says, oh, the user moderators tried to ban me because they want to, you know, it undermine so edgy. the... Tr- it's very edgy. Mm. Yeah. Oh. I, I used to have one user who used to do this a lot, actually, in one community I managed. <laughs> but they, they, what they were trying to do was undermine the trust in the rest of the community and make yeah. them make people think, oh, like maybe the community management team and the people who host us here, you know, don't have our best interests at heart right. or aren't cool people mm. or, you know, and obviously to get attention as well and all those sort of normal things that go on. But... Yeah. So, but I do think transparency is an issue. I think it's an issue at the macro level because you've got, as we mentioned before, these big players in the space who uh, really do control our digital destinies mm. mm-hmm. um, and they do a lot of wonderful things in that department. I'm not about to rag on that. However, there is, because they are major, major commercial entities mm. with private business interests at stake, um, they don't, you know, disclose or make transparent um, all of their ways of working and their practices around this stuff. And it does become a challenge when you're talking about individuals and things like censorship and free speech. It becomes pretty complicated pretty quickly. You only need to look to the scandals across the last sort of 12 to 18 months with Facebook and its moderation policies, um, which is a favourite topic of mine, um, and, and, you know, their um, claim to sort of, you know, to to not be interventionist and want to take a back seat when the algorithm itself and, in fact, their moderation policies are actually extremely interventionist they're just yes. interventionist in a particular way so there's yeah. there's a whole bunch of unconscious bias in their policies and, and procedures that they don't really either don't recognize or certainly don't acknowledge until it's leaked in the press and then they have to have a public conversation mm-hmm. about it and because it's not visible on platform and community managers on some of these platforms and tools don't have all the same tools that, you know, the organisation has, um, we're not in control either fully. So Mm. it's, yeah, there is a really awkward tension. I think we want the platforms to get it right. They want more users and more engagement. Um, You know, I just like to, I like to see everybody get along and figure it out. Yeah. I I like that you point out that that commercial um, tension. I feel like there's another interesting tension between uh, the idea of having your rules explicitly laid out and working in a very reactive environment where suddenly behaviours change en masse with your audience 
and you actually really do need to start to implement new ways of coping with with new behaviours. Uh, do you think that that's, that's something that generally community managers uh you know, are well equipped for, or do you think that usually people's experience of that is, you know, trial by fire? <laughs> there, there is a lot of trial by fire. In my experience, uh, most community pros do have a pretty good idea of what to do in that sort of situation. It's probably something they've encountered, they've researched it, there's there's best practices out there. They sort of know how to handle themselves. However, and certainly how to handle themselves on behalf of the organisation, where there's a bit of a disconnect, and this has come up in the um, community management survey and research that you mentioned that we've conducted in the last couple of years, there's a bit of a disconnect often between the organisation that person might work for um, and <coughs> who's sort of, you know, pulling the purse strings and, and making it happen and that person who's actually got custody of the community and is responsible for mm. running it. So they might know what to do, but part of what they might need is somebody to flick a switch and turn the community off for two hours, or they might need a bit of extra technical support, or they might need to make a functional change, or they might need, you know, add three extra moderators for two hours, whatever mm. it might yeah, be, yeah. human, techno technological, some sort of support structure or scaffold that they may struggle to articulate and explain to the organisation because there's not necessarily that understanding or or even if it's understood, they might not buy into it and they just might say, no, we've seen that. So somebody mm. says, look, we're kind of under attack here, like there's a lot of stuff going on, here's the problem, here's what we need to solve it and the organisation says, you know, it's on you, you've got to fix it and that's why you're here. Mm. So that can be, you know, not to, to demonise those orgs hosting those community managers and giving them jobs but, you know, it is a problem. I think we need. there's a little An bit of a gap Close. Yeah, needing yeah. to scale up at times. Yes, exactly. And that yeah. it's not, again, that it's not, um, you really can't, even if your community is quite small or the need is quite small, you, you need more than just that one body mm. uh, thinking about this and working in it and enmeshing in this. You need to, that knowledge to become more institutionalised, you need a holistic approach. Mm. So I feel like we've probably spent a disproportionate amount of our time this evening <laughs> discussing um, public areas of, of communities. But I think the enterprise is a really interesting area because you're dealing with different sorts of behaviours. You've got different social mores. You've got a, a corporate culture rather than um, public, you know, diverse cultures going on. Uh, it can still be diverse and full of subcultures, but probably there's less need to wield the ban hammer <laughs> as we were talking about. Uh, what sort of differences do you see when people move to community management in, uh, for enterprise? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head to start with is, well, first of all, I think there's is the initial entry into the space. So normally if you're hired to manage a community, hired to start one particularly, you know, one of the most important jobs you have is determining membership criteria, What's what does being a member of that community mean and how do you get people to join it or how do you build a community around an existing group of people? Um recruitment and onboarding and those sort of things. That's less of an issue if you're coming into a culture, an existing company and enterprise with a bunch of people already in it. So one thing you don't usually have to do is go and find people to join it, for example. So instead, you need to spend, um, you know, as you would do in an online community, if you're coming to it and it's already established, you need to do a bit of ethnography, you need to do a bit of research and homework and go and learn that culture, mm -hmm. spend, ferret out those subcultures that you mentioned, see where the pockets of different people are, 
see where the influencers are, see where the innovators are, see where the people who like things a particular way are um, and just, you know, get a get a handle on what makes it all tick and how it all sort of fits together. And that will give you the basis to then formulate a plan for the best way to communicate within that culture, the best way to mobilise it if you need to get everybody mobilised around a certain project or idea, um, if you need to actually work with leadership to create cultural change, which is often why community mm. managers might be brought into an organisation. Mm. Um, you, you're going to be able to best steward that if you, you know, you need a very clear lay of the current land and you need it from within. You don't just, getting a report that somebody else has done or hearing from the top what they think it is is one thing. That's important, um, particularly if there has been good analysis done, but it's really important that you yourself go and, you know, check it all out and get a sense of what you might need to change and how you need to manage it. You're also dealing with private tools, um, you know, enterprise social networks, um, things like Slack and Yammer and those sort of things, intranets and, and what have you, um, which where you can usually be a bit more liberal, as you said, in terms of um, guidelines. But you also, you do see, in my experience, generally the same sort of social dynamics. There are the same disruptors and detractors, um, the same sort of, you know, people that like to be the dominant voice, people that are lurking quietly but may actually have a lot of value to give. So fundamentally the job of a community manager to connect, you know, connect somebody person A with person B and make something useful happen, um, that doesn't go away. I think it's arguably even more important in the enterprise environment. Mm. Vanessa Paik, always tremendously enlightening to have a conversation with you. Um, would you like to give a final plug to Swarm Conference? Where can people find out more? I would love to. Thank you. Um, if you want to learn more about Swarm, um, if you want to come along or just learn what it is and what to do, check out www.swarmconference.com.au or you can follow us on Twitter at SwarmConf. The hashtag is SwarmConf, so if you can't make it along but you are interested in all the stuff we've been talking about, you can kind of check out the discussion over the next couple of weeks. And it's on August 30 and 31 at the University of Sydney. Tyler, how are you feeling after that chat? I'm uh, overwhelmed with that amount of information. It oh, was so great to, was... to hear about, like, I don't know a whole lot about community management. Now I feel like an expert, thanks to Vanessa. Yeah, it's and great. we experience so much of it all the time when, mm. we're, when we're online, but I think getting it's, a little insight into those nuances yeah. behind how that experience yeah. is managed. A little is... bit of a backstage pass. That's uh, right. Behind the scenes. Definitely, that was tremendous. Um, we do have a little weird news of the week this week. Tyler, what is it? Um, we're going to talk about hashtags. Absolutely. Hashtags, everyone's favourite. Yeah. Um, on twenty on the 23rd of August, 2007, exactly 10 years ago, wow, the hashtag back. was born on Twitter. Um, Chris Messina um, tweeted, how do you feel about using hash or pound for groups, as in hash bar camp, uh, was the first use of a hashtag. It's so classic that yeah. um, this came from a person who uses the expression pound for the symbol, yeah. and yet we ended up calling it hashtags. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, well, why not pound tags? At least not Octothorpe tag. Yes, I'm really <laughs> glad it's not that. More or Noughts and Crosses tag. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what's great is that Twitter put out a few numbers on the amount of hashtags that we use. So globally, uh, they say an average of 125 million hashtags are shared every day on Twitter. No wonder I can't keep up. Yeah, it's, it's too many um, too many cause of the day, as uh, Vanessa put it. Yes, uh, that's, that's it. That's a good one. Uh, um, so the most tweeted hashtag in 2007, the year that they were born, was used about 9,000 times. 
Um, but the most used hashtag so far in, in this year was used over 300 million times. So that shows you yeah. how the behaviour has just really taken a hold, taken people's yeah. imaginations. I think the key uh, part of that sentence to be amazed at is so far. Yes. <laughs> 300 million times so far. Definitely. Um, we've tweeted almost half a billion times with hashtags since they were born, showing the oh no, showing the laugh, love for homegrown boy band Five Seconds of Summer. So that's half a billion hashtags just related to Five Sauce. Wow. Uh, and um, Aussie political junkies have used the Ozpol hashtag three and a half million times. Yeah, that's a really great tag for when you've been in a meeting for an hour and you want to know what's happened. Mm. You know, who's suddenly discovered they're a citizen of New Zealand? You hop on Ozpol <laughs> and all the breaking news is there. It's a really useful one. Do you have any favourite hashtags, Tom? I actually don't use Twitter, so ah. I. I'm, I uh, what about I, on Instagram or anything else? Um, I yeah, um, I am a big fan of uh, all the music hashtags. I like ah. to see uh, I like to see performers and uh, like guitar love and that, guitar those sort, love. Those sort nice. of things and see see what people are creating. That's that's my favourite use of hashtags. I guess I on the flip side, are there any hashtags that instantly irritate you? Ah. Uh, Probably anything that's uh, just jumping on the news of the day, I would say. Okay. It's uh, your, um, I'm trying to think of one, actually. Do, do so you, you have any? You don't mind a YOLO? Oh, no, YOLO is great. Uh, we live in Melbourne. Everything's uh, yes. everything's ironic here. It is, it is. And um, I quite like a no filter. I know some people don't like that, but I think that I actually just live a no filter life now. I much prefer the no filter experience yeah, on exactly. Instagram. More natural. Well, it takes too much time to find a filter for everything. And then you go, I've just made the image quality so much worse. <laughs> so no filter it is. No filter it is. Uh, there is a special hashtag for hashtag, um, hashtag's 10th birthday. If you hash hashtag one zero, um, a little very... I don't know, very yeah. unrewarding uh, emoji type thing will pop up. Yeah, well, some people do a lot of things for uh, for those emojis. I well, tweeted this out just to yeah. see the emoji and then I went, oh, is that yeah. what the emoji Remember is? Remember the, um, the uproar about the new... Uh, Facebook reacts when they came out. Yeah, it's it's a big thing. It's a big thing. It is a big thing. Yeah. It's very significant. Um, I'm glad we've covered it in this detail. <laughs> uh, look, let's hop on to some events and opportunities. What have we here? Okay, Melbourne Webfest. We love Melbourne Webfest here. They are a Melbourne um, festival all about web series content. So we always mention the catering show, which was a big success from here. Mm. Um, Bondi... Uh, Bondi hipsters ah, also, yes, yep. you know, come up a lot in this area. But they are accepting web series submissions for their 2018 festival now. Early bird submissions are open and they close on the 30th of November. But because web series is a things that you'd probably put a lot of time and effort into, uh, we thought we'd give this a nice big early call so mm -hmm. people have some time to get exactly. their things together. And it's good to hear for students because uh, it's very cheap to enter under $30. Yeah, so, just students good. under 30, standard fees 50 bucks. So, I mean, if you've invested in, in putting a web series together, um, this is a really easy way to, to put your name out there and hopefully get a bit of bit of uh, visibility mm -hmm. for your product and another forum. Uh, in 2018, Melbourne Webfest will acknowledge web series' cast and crews with 24 awards, so, so you'd be submitting to be eligible for 24 awards, including genre, talent and technical awards. Uh, for the first time next year, they will be introducing an award for best production design also. And 
There are some great prizes involved, including the winner of the Grand Jury Award receiving a $1,500 cash prize. And there's all sorts of other, other sort of competitions in there for, for people. So you can sort of, you can pitch things during the festival and get a chance to have internships to build up your skills. It's, mm. um, it's a really well-rounded festival in terms of like supporting capability uplift across participants, but also sharing the creative output of, of this community. So it's really exciting. It's brilliant. It's brilliant to have. Um, Contours Exhibition 2017 coming up oh it's uh, currently on right now um, which is a mixtape exhibition of contemporary Australian video games split into two sides the side A explores not quite games games that don't quite fit our understanding or expectation of video games and side B focuses on personal games which are intimate autobiographical or personal in nature um so, do you know much more about this? Yeah, reason? look, yeah. I love I love the metaphor of the mixtape for curating mm. um, an exhibition of games, and particularly uh, in this innovative kind of experimental space for games. It's mm. yeah, it's kind of exciting, and um, it's put together in part by um, the new creative director of Freeplay. Uh, so that's kind of great. Um, do check out contours-exhibition.com and uh, find out more information there. We want to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Vanessa Paik, a community manager behind Swarm Conference. Um, do check that out if you're interested in those sort of things. We've been bite into it. Thanks for your help, Tyler. Oh, no problem at all. It's great to have you here. Up next, the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Stick around for that. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.